stories of the saints. We are here again. Restore Gospel Podcast is happy to present another episode. My guest today is a friend, a follower of Christ, and also a fellow nurse. We actually met while in the field of hospice. Um, James was, I say this day, was the best nurse I had the pleasure of training while in hospice, and he quickly moved from uh, being a field nurse to manager to director, and um, I'll let him fill in those holes so I don't misrepresent him. But um, not too long ago, my cousin Melinda um, had cancer, and it came back pretty furiously, and she had to go on hospice. Uh, she moved in with us, and James' company, I reached out to him, was the one that took care of her, and he made her last two days, especially her last two days, as best they could be, but for several months, we had a good quality of life, and I'm so thankful to him for doing that, and I know he's helped uh, countless others as well in that walk, um, but what brought us together today was a video that he posted a few days ago. Um, I th- he thought that that would be timely for what many of us are experiencing today. It was a testimony of a time in his life when he lost everything. And with our economic shutdown and the virus and everything we're experiencing today, uh, I thought that that was timely as well. And so I invited him here to talk about that, among other things, among his testimony of Jesus. So without uh, further babbling from me, let me welcome my guest today, James Dibbon. Welcome. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me on. James and I were talking. Um, it's probably been a several years since we've actually seen each other face to face. And even while Melinda was on hospice, uh, we never actually saw each other. Um, we just talked on the phone a lot. And uh, I think social media has replaced our face to face interaction because we text and talk all the time on the phone, but we haven't um, actually sat down together. Uh, I was thinking, when was the last time? It was probably Starbucks, somewhere we met after you had left the hospice company we both worked for and moved on. And I think that was it. I remember, I remember that here, right here in town. <laughs> yeah. Well, James, uh, introduce yourself, you know, say as much or as little as you want about your family, where you're living, what you're doing right now. Just uh, tell our sure. tell our audience a little bit. So, yeah, I live not far from here in the Kansas City area and uh, will have been married to my wife for 29 years. We'll celebrate our 30th in, uh, in October. Um, so that's coming up. We have two, uh, we have four daughters. Um, ranging from 22 is our oldest to 21 to 18 and to 16. So we're finally working our way to the end of raising children <laughs> and it, it does get easier. <laughs> I don't care what anybody <laughs> says. <laughs> I, I've noticed that you've been quite the handyman as of recently. It looks like you've had quite some, some projects that you've been doing around the house. And one that I thought was absolutely incredible and fantastic was you mounted a bracket in the ceiling of your one daughter's bedroom that that holds like a, a silk curtain or whatever where she can like <laughs> climb in and do aerobics and what do they call that they're aerial aerial a-r-i-a-l so okay. aerial silks Okay. Um, and I'm sure it's a popular item with your listeners. but <laughs> <laughs> We've all been wondering where to get one, so I thought you could help us out. <laughs> yeah, so my, my daughter, my youngest, um, is just, she's just very athletic, very energetic. 
Um, she's an ice skater as well. And during all of this quarantine business, she is really itching for to do something different because she's not able to express herself the way she usually does. And so when we were at the Renaissance Festival last fall, she saw these other women using these silks that you hang from high places and you climb up them and there's all these tricks and acrobatics you do. So she ordered some off Amazon and said, Hey dad, I need you to mount a bracket in my room that can hold, you know, 500 pounds. (laughs) (laughs) So I said, well, you can always patch a couple of holes in the ceiling and this house is for living in. We don't worship our home. We live in it. (laughs) And so I went to mounting this thing in there and there's all kinds of crazy stuff. The door closes and music comes on and I don't know, she's spinning in that thing or climbing it or whatever. (laughs) Probably don't want to know. (laughs) Probably don't. She's talked her older sister into trying it out. It's been very entertaining. Well, you are a handyman and we'll get into that a little bit later with part of your testimony. But you know, James, if I would have done that, um, our ceiling would already be down and drywall (laughs) plastered all over the floor and (laughs) a broken neck or arm here or there. So I know she can trust your skills, but but I would never trust mine. (laughs) (laughs) I hung from it just to be sure. To be sure? You tried it out first? Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. Do you have a good soundtrack playing while you did it? Any repertoire (laughs) that you you want to post on YouTube? (laughs) Not that I can think of, right? off okay. I just just me praying that it will hold up and won't tear our <laughs> sheetrock out well james early on when i met you you and i spent a lot of hours together uh i happened to be i think the educator at the time and then the manager for the field team and um and so that was one of your first uh rn jobs and uh we we basically uh, saw your qualities as a leader you know and you you had had your own business and things and hired you you took to hospice like nobody else that I had seen. What what made you want to go into the field of hospice? Well, so I'm a very relational person. And so it, hospice was my first and has been my only job as a registered nurse. Prior to that, I was an LPN. And even prior to that, which I know we'll get into, I was in subcontracting and some things like that, although I had become an LPN many years ago. And you did um, mental health with that? I did, yeah, as an LPN. I did a lot of different things, but Mm -hmm. I spent four years in mental health before becoming a hospice nurse. We'll circle back around to that. Yeah. Um, So the reason, so I sat down and decided what I wanted, and there were a few things I needed. My kids were still kind of young, so I wanted to go into an area of nursing that was, um, you know, that was more of a Monday through Friday with weekends off generally. And uh, so the hospice that you were at at the time had that kind of a setup. I also wanted – I didn't want to work long-term care where I took care of patients for years. Mm -hmm. But I also didn't want to work in the hospital where I took care of patients for three days. Right. I wanted something more in between that was more relational in nature. Um, And it only took me a week of hanging out with you to know that hospice was just the right place for me to land. Yeah. I remember early on, um, as you moved out and, and just, you know, had your own caseload, I remember you would come into my office oftentimes, and it was some of my favorite times, we would just sit and talk, and you adopted this thing that I just thought was genius, and I thought it was so neat that you said you would walk into a house, and before you got out your stethoscope or your blood pressure cuff or your computer, you would just sit down and spend 10 to 15 minutes just talking to the person face-to-face, you know, eye contact and everything else aside, and you were just there to talk with them. And you, you said that that never 
hurt you from getting your charting done at that visit. It never prolonged it past what you were able to to do, you know, but it worked well. Tell me about that. Well, it developed because, you know, I was about four, you know, I had my first RN job, right? Didn't know anything about hospice, had been doing mental health for four years. So I didn't even know the names of common blood pressure medicine, right? Right. So I was really walking in pretty green. And um, after four weeks of orientation, which was generous beyond imagination, I was, it was time for me to go out on my own. And I, what I really felt like my biggest attribute and the biggest thing I could bring to the table as a brand new hospice nurse was relationship, mm-hmm. calm, kindness, caring, loving people, serving people. Um, and I felt like that's what I needed on top of everything because I was not going to be able to answer all of their hospice questions. Right. At all, <laughs> right. you know, because I would sit there and I tell new nurses this now is I would sit there and I would listen to them and we would have that first 10 minutes of conversation and then they would start asking me hospice related questions and some of it I could answer. I had a fantastic nurse that orientated me, um, but a lot of it I wasn't going to be able to answer and I'd be like, yeah, yeah, those are good questions. You know, I can't do anything without a doctor's order. Let me step out for a second. And let me call my doctor and and I'll, I'll come right back in. And they were always cool with that. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, you know. And so I would step out and go, Dr. Link, I don't know <laughs> what I'm doing. Oh, my God. They just asked me all these questions. What do I do? And he would just be calming and patient and would just talk me through it. And that's just what I did, you know. And so – and. I didn't have any problems with patients not liking me or not trusting me just because, you know, I just kind of played it off a little bit. But I think they knew that I cared about them. I wanted what was best for them. I wanted them to have a good hospice experience. But I would listen to them, mm-hmm. you know, because – and what I teach people is that hospice is a heart job, you know. And medicine can be such check checklists, right? right? We have all this electronic documentation and we click this box for breath sounds and this box for whatever. And what I try to teach my nurses is that hospice is really a heart job, that there are check boxes and we have to do those check boxes. But this is about our heart and whether our heart is in this job and our patients will know it, you know, that, that they, you know, they understand the check boxes. But, you know, I've had patients that say, you know, for the first time in my life, Somebody actually listened to me. A healthcare professional actually sat down and listened to me and actually heard what it is I wanted. Yeah. So that's that's really whether you're in hospice or not. I think you just expressed a great principle for for a Christian or even a human just to live by that. When people know you care about them genuinely, they're they're more forgiving in other areas. But but they have to know that you're there because you care about them and not just doing. A job, and I think we have the luxury of doing that. I say we. I, I still see myself as a, a hospice nurse sometimes. It's my passion. <laughs> I loved it. Um, so, well, tell me once you got into hospice, any experiences that you want to share? Any special patients that you just want to pay tribute to, or you remember, or I'll, anything that changed you? Yeah. Well, I'll tell one story. Um, I actually wrote about it on on my one of my websites, but it was. It was about a an older lady, obviously, who was living with her son and daughter-in-law. And I showed up one day, and it was just different. You know, everybody was gathered. Usually the son 
is sleeping because he worked nights, but everybody was there. And I just kind of sat down and looked over at her and I just said, is everything okay? This is already different than usual. And she said, well, she said, I'm scared. And I said, okay, what are you scared of? And she said, I'm scared I'll die on Thanksgiving. And I said, okay, and so what are your fears around that? Um, and I've learned in hospice, the more questions you can ask and get people to just talk, the better off you are. Right. You know? And so she was like, well, I'm afraid that I'm going to ruin Thanksgiving for everybody forever. And I said, if your family spends every Thanksgiving taking a few minutes to remember you, is that really such a bad thing? And she just kind of looked at me and, and her son spoke up and said, or her grandson spoke up and said, Grandma, why are you worrying about this about us? You know, we love you. We all love you. Mm-hmm. And if we think we're going to think of you on Thanksgiving and Christmas and all the holidays anyway. So it's okay. You know, it's okay. And so we went about our visit as normal and we spent most of our time talking anyway, you know, at the end I'm like, Oh, I guess I should listen to you how your breathing is. (laughs) (laughs) And so I handled all that stuff and, and I went ahead and left, you know, and before I left, I just reminded her that don't worry about it. It's okay if you die on Thanksgiving. And that's what she did. She did. Wow. Wow. Yeah. You know, people come up, hospice is also unique, James, because I, okay, so I was in the ER. You know, I worked in the ER for, I don't know, 10 years, 8 years. Um, and I wanted to move into an area where, at least in hospice, I knew everybody Everybody pretty much was sick. <laughs> and uh, that had been determined, right? And I thought being around people who were facing that time in life would maybe help me see life in a different way um, as well. But we are dealing with people that are confronting their mortality, Right. And it, mm. even even those that know they're dying, there comes a point when I think when they're aware, like, oh, my, oh my goodness, this is this is it. Um, what? And so that brings into uh, that brings out the questions of what happens after we die. You know, you're a Christian, right? Yeah. What was your how did you become a Christian? What was your early experience or memory of Jesus? uh what was your path? Were you raised that way? I was. My parents got saved right before I was born. I was born in 1971. That tells you how old I'm getting to be. And uh, they were six-month babies in the Lord. Mm-hmm. And so I was kind of born into a home, you know, and grew up in church and around church and saved from a very young age because my mom would do five-day clubs. I don't know if you remember those at all, but back in the 70s, those no. were popular where you would you would have like a little day camp in the summer. You know, churches didn't have them as much as they do now. Okay, so like, a, like a Bible school, vacation you would, church school? You or? would do like a VBS. Okay. You'd do a VBS in your garage. Gotcha. And um, when I was like three or four, my mom asked a bunch of little kids if they wanted to get saved and, you know, love Jesus. And I raised my hand and she's like, oh my gosh, my three-year-old's right <laughs> She's like, okay. So later on she came to me and she said, okay, you raised your hand. Why did you do that? And I said, cause I'm a bad boy. <laughs> and so she let me at the age of three, you know? Um, so it's been since I was young, but I, I think the turning point, because I think 
you know, it's real easy when you grow up in a, a Christian home. Right. You know, you just kind of follow in the path. You don't know any sure. difference. But at some point, everybody has that moment. And it was when I was 15, living mm-hmm. in Kansas. Uh, we had moved there for a couple of years, and my family wasn't super involved at church at the time. They just weren't too much going on. Life was busy, whatever. And I had a decision to make. I had a neighbor who lived a pretty wild life, um, alcohol and lots of other stuff and partying. And I was faced with a moment where I had to decide one or the other, I felt like for me. Mm-hmm. And um, and I had parents who weren't really going to church that much. And so I finally just decided my sister and I were going to start going to church, or at least I was, and started, I was old enough to drive and started driving myself to church. And I think that was the real turning point at the age of 15 when I was in Kansas, so you can get a driver's license, (laughs) (laughs) Um, where I just said, well, the people around me aren't going to church right now, um, but I'm going to. Wow. So you just stepped out on your own. Yeah. Wow. Just started going. You know, mm-hmm. we had made a couple of light. I was going to a Christian school there um, in the area because I kind of grew up going to Christian private schools. And uh, so I kind of had a few connections with some of the kids I went to school with and picked a couple and tried two or three and found one that I liked and and uh, and started going to church. So I think that was the big turning point probably for me. Well, as we, as you and I worked closely together, it didn't take me too many hours to realize you were a Christian, um, just from your countenance and your smile and your demeanor towards other people. And, um, I thought, wow, what a welcome employee this is going to be and be a blessing to many people. Um, so you and I have had a number of conversations through the years about God. And, and even when we were working together, you know, we would sit down and talk about Jesus and God and things of eternity, uh, love those conversations. Um, tell a little bit about your ministry. You, you, so you go to a larger church, but you headed up some small groups, right? Yeah. Yeah. We, we, uh, we go to a church outside of town here and over the years, and my wife and I have always stayed in church during our almost 30 years of marriage. Uh-huh. And so I've always had opportunities to be involved in small groups. And so, um, Over the years, we just, you know, a lot of churches do the small groups. And so back when they kind of, it's really started to blossom in the, you know, mid nineties and all the way through now, um, yeah, I've always generally been involved in some small groups and had like a small men's group that we met with, you know, a couple times a month, just sharing life together, talking about male related issues and, uh, yeah. And you led those, is that right? Yeah, I led those. I've, you know, taught some Sunday school at Mm -hmm. church as well, different, different materials and stuff. Never mind. I'm not an original preacher type person where I could sit and develop my own stuff. I always just found other material and just taught it to people and uh, just something I actually have turned out to be decent at doing. (laughs) Well, and that that transmits probably into hospice as well. I mean, it's all relational, like letting people know you care about them. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. What do you think the benefit of small groups is compared to a large service on a Sunday morning? Well, it, yeah, I think sometimes it can also depend a lot on the size of your church. Mm-hmm. You know, when you have a, I grew up in a really small church, Me so too. you just knew everybody, right? Um, but the bigger the church gets, I think the more important it is to have some kind of a small group um, 
you know, foundation to it so that you can kind of get to know a group of people because you can start getting lost in some larger churches real easy. More accountability there, in yeah, some ways? Yeah, definitely more accountability. I liked having the male-only small group, um, and we did that for two or three years, um, and that was really good uh, just to give men a chance to say things maybe around other men that they're afraid to say in front of their spouse or don't want to appear weak, you know, or sure. whatever. But if you get comfortable with a few guys, you might be willing to share something that um, that you need help with or that you're struggling with that you're not going to feel comfortable sharing with your wife. What do you think that does for the heart when you're able to open up and confess uh, some things you're struggling with? Well, if you have good leaders around, who are willing to admit that maybe they struggle with the same thing, you don't feel alone anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, men can really struggle with some loneliness sometimes. I think the the women, at least this has been my experience, have been better at, at forming those relationships in small groups and being a little more authentic with each other. Maybe not always, mm-hmm. but I think a lot of times the men have a, you know, they, they put on this show of how strong they are and how they want to, appear to their other buddies or their, or their own family, you know, because we're trying to lead and be that strength. And so I think it's tougher to get men to kind of open up and talk about the real challenges they have. Yeah. I think that's one of the adversary's biggest uh, tools is to make us feel like we're worse than other people and to Mm -hmm. beat beat ourselves up. And so when, when we confess those weaknesses or things, then uh, it takes that weapon away from him. Yeah. Well, so you've spent some time <clears throat> in leadership positions, but uh, also just have been dedicated, it sounds like, to, um, through your life to go into church. Um, before you came to hospice, and this is really what I saw you, you posted a very uh, neat video this week online, and I shared it. Um, before you came to hospice, you owned your own company, right? Mm-hmm. And construction, like I said, you're a handyman. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we you specialized uh, in the homes with the silk, the silk. <laughs> so if you need, if you need aerial silks hung, I am your man. Yeah. So James, tell us, um, you, you posted something you thought was very pertinent today. So let's talk about this story. So tell me about your business that you had and your construction business. So, yeah. Um, so my entire life, my father has owned a custom cabinet company for kitchens and bathrooms. And so I I always joke that me and him have had this long, interesting experience together where he would hire me and he would either fire me or I would quit him, (laughs) you know, because we just always would struggle. Um, And so over the years, I've worked on and off for him. That's how I became an LPN, a nurse, and then left nursing and went to work for him and other small businesses and then came back. But in 2004, after having worked for him, for several years, I decided to branch off and create my own subcontracting company making countertops. And um, for just plain old laminate, Formica, Wilson Art, whatever you want to call it, countertops. And so I branched off and created that, and, and then we found our way into becoming an installation company for the kind of cabinets that Home Depot and Lowe's sell, you know, kind of the pre-finished, mm-hmm. ready to go, put them together. And so we did that from about 2005 through 2011. Um, And so that's, 
that's kind of my experience in construction. It it wasn't like general contractor or anything, right. but it was just specialty kitchens and bathrooms, cabinets and countertops type stuff. So <clears throat> in your testimony that you shared, your your church challenged you, or did they challenge all of their members to put out a, a video, or what was the challenge? Yeah, our church here just recently um, that I go to challenged everybody to put out a one-minute— One-minute. <laughs> it's a one-minute— Times tes- 30. Testimony, <laughs> exactly. It, you know, so I didn't, I didn't hashtag the video that I made or anything because it was one minute to change the world or whatever, and it was a whole lot of— um, people in our church who just created a quick YouTube, not a YouTube video, but like a video using their phone or whatever and right. uploaded it. And so my wife had been bothering me for a few days and I knew I needed to do it. So not really bothering me, but encouraging me saying, right. you've got, you've been through something that a lot of people are going through right now. And I think your experiences will help them. And I said, you know, I've been feeling that tug as well, but I can't do it in one minute. Yeah, <laughs> you know it's going to take a little bit longer than that, and it took me three or four days of just thinking about it, trying to decide what I wanted to say, what I wanted to share, um, and so I finally just set a chair up in the back of our yard and put my put a my phone on the the st- stand and just recorded a thirty minute, mostly impromptu um, video on what I went through when the housing bubble burst in sure. 2002 two, or 2007, 2008. And I'll put a, I'll put a link on the show notes. People can go and watch. You said it's up on YouTube now. I, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> but, um, but I just wanted to kind of conversationally walk through that. So yeah, tell me, James, tell me about how good your business was doing and what happened when the, if people don't remember and what happened around 2008, that when you say the housing bubble burst, it was what too much, too many loans, too many. Yeah, there was a lot going on. So, um, so in two thousand, so you know, when I started the business in two thousand four to two thousand five, it was strictly just countertops, and it was doing so so. Mm-hmm. You know, not that great. It probably wasn't going to make it. Um, but then we had some local. Um, Companies contacted my dad, who still had his cabinet shop, wanting him to install these prefab cabinets. And my dad's always made custom, unfinished cabinets. I mean, he's a true artist, right? right? Um, And so he said, I don't think we want our company to keep doing this. Do you want to take it over? And I'm like, well, it's either that or the unemployment line, so let's do it. So in about Mm 2005-ish, we took that on. And between 2005 and 2006, it just exploded. Wow. It just it just went crazy. We went from very small numbers, you know, $100,000 a year to 2, 3, 4, 500,000 a year in sales and revenue and I had I was up to 6 trucks and 13 employees and you know, shipping countertops all over the place and so 2006 was our big year and as we started to move into 2007, I was like we, you know, we were about ready to land one of the biggest construction companies in the in the whole city of Kansas City that did tons of work. And I sat down and I did the math and we were looking at pushing a million dollars that year and had had a really good year the year before. And so I decided, you know, let's go ahead and, and uh, you know, step forward in faith. Mm-hmm. James made air quotes. <laughs> faith as in <laughs> I want this. Um, and my wife being absolutely amazing, well, she will just follow me you know, anywhere, 
You know, she's just always been so encouraging, such a source of, of faith and help for me. And so she followed me into this um, because she believed in me. And, 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 and so in, in like March of 2007, we went out and bought this enormous house. You know, the money was there, the work was coming, everything was going to be great. And so a lot of people say the the bubble burst in 2008 and I'm here to, to <laughs> testify it burst in 2007. <laughs> yeah, it started, yeah. Yeah, it really did start because, you know, here in the Kansas City metropolitan area, you know, we pulled, there was 11,000 new construction permits get pulled a month. A month? A month, okay. 11,000. And that would have been like, you know, February, March, April, whatever. Well, in May, it dropped to 1,100. Oh, my goodness. 90% of the market said goodbye. Mm. And so all of this work that we had outlined just disappeared overnight, two months within buying this house. And now I'm not like, I'm just a guy out here working, right? And mm -hmm. I just see what happened and what has been promised to me. I have no clue. I'm not paying attention to the stock market. I'm not reading all this stuff. Maybe people knew the crash was coming. I didn't, mm -hmm. you know, I'm too busy working. Right. And so within two months of buying the house, everything disappeared right in front of me. And I knew we were in trouble on the spot. Mm. I knew we were in trouble. Um, and so I, I didn't know what to do because two months after moving into your dream house, how do you go up to your wife mm. and tell her now you're going to, you know, you're going to lose it and it's going to be embarrassing and it's going to be ugly and it's going to be horrible. And your house is going to lose a, th our house lost a third of its value overnight. Oh, your house lost value too. Oh yeah. Besides the fact that you Over, lost your job. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that, yeah. You know, now this was 2007. I fought it for four years. Four years. For four years, I fought trying to save it all. The house, not so much. <laughs> right. So um, so I spent the next, rather than telling my wife we were going to lose it, I spent the next six months um, diverting every ounce of cash that I could find in my business to making house payments and keeping the house. That's I don't want to interrupt you, but You're that's fine. no small thing to skip over. I oh, I remember one time in my life I got fired a day before my ninety day probation at a union company, and going that drive home that day, knowing I had to tell my wife I just lost my job. I was so I don't know that hurt so bad to have to do that, and for men like you said earlier, that's no small thing. That's really. Mm -hmm really difficult. And some people may be experiencing things like that now. But, sorry, I didn't want to interrupt you. I just want to say that, yeah. that that puts a lot of mental anguish on you. And like you said, you were fighting hard to. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's good that you bring that up because what happened over the next six months with me diverting money to try to keep the house, because I'm thinking, well, this will be short-lived. Right. We all know now it was not short-lived. <laughs> my, my house here has still not come up to the value that I paid for it. I'm still upside down. I mean, yeah. the equity's not there. Right. Yeah. So, um, so, I, so what I did was I ended up burying us in credit card debt, and I mm. withheld the money I was supposed to send the IRS because I thought I could just catch up later. You know, my payroll 
money that I'm supposed to send in. You know, when you get your check and it says you paid $400 to the federal government. Right. Well, your employer has to send that in, right? Okay. I wasn't sending that in. That's a bad thing. (laughs) That's a bad thing. And so as that piled up on me and I knew that I was still going to have to tell my wife we weren't going to keep the house, it was eight months of me knowing and of this piling up and the amount of fear and anxiety that began to envelop me was indescribable. Mm, I can't imagine. Yeah. You wake up in the morning and it's there. Yeah, every day you know it's there. And so I started to develop some really, really, really bad depression mm-hmm. that year. Um, fear, depression. And one of the things I talk about in my video, you know, in mental health, we learn that, you know, and you learn this in nursing in general anyway, is that if you feel like somebody might be suicidal, you ask them if they have a plan. Right. You know, and if they come back to you with specifics, you know you've got a serious situation on your hands. And I had a plan. Mm-hmm. I was I had this big black suburban and I was gonna drive it over an overpass on the way home. Wow. And I just wasn't sure which day, you know, I had a big life insurance policy and I knew that um I had even asked my insurance man. Oh wow. Cause I had had the policy for about a year and I said and he was at my office talking to me and I just said, Hey, I'm just curious. You're always, you know, I really blew it off well over him. And I just said, you know, I'm always hearing that, you know, if somebody was to go hang gliding or do something dangerous or have, you know, or to kill themselves that their insurance policy would pay, wouldn't pay out. And he said, Oh, that's really only about the first 90 days or something. You know, after that, it's not a big deal. So I had tricked my insurance guy into letting me know that it would be okay um, if I killed myself, mm. that my family would still get that $750,000 life insurance policy. Mm. So I had a very serious You plan. were serious. I was very serious about it because I was scared and afraid and I felt very alone. Um, yeah, and all of the things that makes a man feel worth, you know, even knowing Christ um, are like ripped out from under you. Right, yeah. your your ability to provide for your family and you're looking at your daughters every day and things like that. Yeah. Well, you know, when I look back on it retrospectively, I was I was obsessed over things. Things. Okay. It was things. I mean, my kids. I still had all my kids. You know, I had my wife who loved me, but it was the things I was going to lose that I was working so hard for, um, and just fear. I was just controlled and dominated by fear. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I. You know, I talk about in the video, I ended up going and seeing my medical doctor and he put me on some anti-anxiety meds. Okay. Um, You know, and so one thing I don't do in my video and we don't really need to try to get into here is what the med was and all that kind of stuff. But I just make mention that if you're somebody who is on medications for mental illness, don't throw your meds away right now because you're listening to me on the radio. <laughs> right. That's <laughs> responsible. That's responsible. You know, stay yeah. on your meds. Um, but what I was put on was the absolute wrong thing. And you knew more about the meds and the reactions and what you could. I do now. Yeah. At the time, I didn't. Oh, okay. Because I'd been out of medicine for so long. You know, I had been out of medicine really for 10 or 15 years. Um, so I just didn't know what much of anything was. It just right. was out of practice. But um you know, so I was on that medicine and it just made me not care. 
I remember sitting in that big house um, in the evenings, just sitting there, just going, I don't really care about anything. Just lost ambition. Of yeah, all I just lost all ambition. It wasn't. It certainly wasn't going to keep me from my suicidal thoughts. It probably made it worse. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went to church one evening, and um, some of the timeline I don't remember real clearly. That's okay. It's a couple of the events, but I, one of the times I was at church in the evening, like on a Wednesday night, just up front praying, just saying, "God, I know this is wrong. Me being on this medicine because it. I don't care." And I'm using these pills right now to to try to calm my fears and anxieties. And I need to be using you, mm-hmm. not these not these chemicals. And so I just, I basically, you know, we would call it being slain in the spirit. I'm not a big fan of that phrase because I don't think I was prostrate before the Lord. That's what I was. You were humbling yourself. Mm-hmm. Broken heart, contrite yep. spirit. I was on the floor. Just mm-hmm. on the floor, laying there, going, "There's something. Something is broken in me, and I need God to fix it." Yeah. And that was a big. That was the biggest event. I went home and went and grabbed that bottle of pills that night, and tossed it in the trash. Boom, done. And I said, "There's something different for me than this to get me through this." Um, and it wasn't shortly after that one Sunday morning that our pastor. In the middle of the service, we went there six years. I never saw him do this one time. He stopped the service, and he said, excuse me, everybody, but I have to go say something to somebody. And it was me. Wow. And he came down from the stage, and he came and he whispered in my ear for maybe 30 seconds to one minute. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's hard to remember everything. It's like you can't get something out of your pocket and record it that quick. But I remember he told me that that, just like Joseph named his son Manasseh, which means God has caused me to forget all my trouble, he said that I would have the same experience eventually. Mm. That God that God would cause me to forget all my trouble. That had to be remarkable. Having never seen him do that before, um, just I mean, you had to know God had His eye on you at that moment. Yeah. What was that like for you? That was. It was it was a little overwhelming. After the service, I went up to him, or later in that week, I went up to him and <clears> said, you know, can you repeat all of it? And he said, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's all in the moment, you know, and he just kind of referred back to the Manasseh thing. Um, and just, and I remember him telling me there's two very difficult things. It's It's difficult to get somebody who is ill to believe to be healed, and it's difficult to get somebody who is poor to believe to be rich. And he didn't necessarily mean either one of those physical, right? you know, but maybe spiritual as much as anything. Um, so, yeah, it was, it it really helped propel me forward. Mm-hmm. And, to, you know, and I really just started reevaluating a lot of things between 2007 and 2008. And in, in like around November of 2008 is when we just moved out of our house. We just walked away from it and went and got a rental. Because, you know, so we went from 3,000 square feet to 1,600 square feet, a family of six, and everybody's sharing rooms. Wow. <laughs> and you said your your wife was a, a blessing during that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. When I finally went to her and said, honey, we just can't stay here. We're, we're going to have to leave. And she said, okay. How would you feel inside then? Relief? Oh, when you relief. finally 
<laughs> Huge just weight. a ton of weight off of me. She's like, okay. She said, but she said, one thing we are not going to do is she says, we're not going to live in a house we're not paying for because I knew we had to stop paying for it. You know, we had stopped six months prior to that paying for the house because we just couldn't anymore. I had to stop, you know, and we started paying the IRS back and getting, you know, started ourselves on a payment plan with them. And so she said, we're not staying in the house. We're not paying for Mm. We're moving out plain and simple. It can just sit there. Let's go somewhere where we're paying where we're living. And so we did that. I said, okay. Didn't matter the size. Just no, we're going to pay, be able to pay for it. One thing I did that was really important is that, I told myself before I told her, I said, you need to be sure to give your wife permission in in your heart. You don't have to say this to her, but in your heart and in your mind, give her permission to respond to this however she needs to respond to it. Wow. Whatever that looks like. If she's mad at you and doesn't want to talk to you for a month, if she yells at you, if she hugs you, whatever, however she needed to handle it, she needs the freedom to do that. That's wise, brother. That's wise. <laughs> yeah. That was a gift from the Lord. <laughs> yeah, it was, you know. Um, and I make a joke that for anybody who doesn't know how to do a budget, if you've never done a budget, owe the IRS money. <laughs> they will show up on your front door and they will come in and they will look at everything and they will help you do a budget. <laughs> well, that's nice. You'll be on a budget when they're done. <laughs> <laughs> uh, wow. Wow. Well, so tell me about your road back. Tell me about some things that happened in your life uh, from being broken. Though this sounded terrible, do you feel like this was actually God's mercy helping you not be attached to things? Or oh, I think so. Do you ever yeah. thought about what would, where would your life have been on a trajectory if you'd continued to, you know, increase your business by a million every year? And yeah, I, I mean, mean that's hard. But yeah, it's it's hard to look back on and and try to understand. And I'm. I think a lot of people who know me now, know me professionally, I should say, right. would see me as a completely, would not see the same person as prior to 2007 mm. because I was just riding a wave of an economy where it didn't matter you were going to succeed. Mm-hmm. You just were, you know? And then when it shriveled up, the reality of of some of abilities and skills and talents uh, became a real thing. And I discovered I'm not a really great cold caller. (laughs) Yeah. Before everybody was just calling me, but when I had to become somebody who was calling everybody else, it was just very different. Um, And I just, I think, I think I began to realize my true dependence on God for everything because I had gotten so comfortable in those two or three years leading up to it all. It really helped me understand where Jesus says it is so hard for a rich person to make it into heaven Mm -hmm. because you can become so dependent on your money and your wealth and what you can do for yourself that you don't really think you need God that much. Simply put. Yeah. And I think that's where I was in 2007. And it took the year of 2007 and 2008 to turn me around and help me realize how dependent I truly, truly am um, on God and, and my faith and Christ. And, and uh, That wasn't a quick 
that wasn't a quick journey, was it? Especially when you're suffering like that. I mean, yeah. that's a, those are some long days and weeks and months and years. They were, you know, and when my pastor was telling me, hey, you know, it's going to be like Manasseh and God's going to cause you to forget all of your trouble. I thought, oh, well, good. That means, you know, a year from now, my business uh-huh. will be up and going. I'll be making tons of money. We'll be back in a big house. We'll pay everybody back who I owe money to, you know, and it was a, it's a, it was a decade, yeah. <laughs> you know, and one of the quotes that I mentioned um, in my video is that God doesn't always care where you're going as much as he cares on who you're becoming. Mm. So it was, it was really about who I became over those two to three years and the changes I began to make in my life because I realized that I wasn't really pressing into my faith at all. I was just kind of wandering around out there trying to put on a good show, but not really being very intentional. That's good. So, so James, you said, you know, a lot of people listening uh, or friends of people listening uh, may, may benefit from this. There's people going through this right now and we know the economy is shut down and we don't know what it's going to look like. If it's, if, when it's going to open up, we don't, we don't know how many people are going to be remain unemployed or how long things will take to recover if they recover. So speak to that journey back, speak about being intentional. And then just tell me about that phrase that you just used. So clarify that. Uh, so we we're all get a better picture pressing into your faith as opposed to walking around it. Yeah. So just what I found. Okay. So the change, the biggest changes I made in my life was I had, I started to become more of a reader. I was never really much of a reader my whole life. Just didn't enjoy any books or anything. And so I started filling, I started filling myself up with positive things and avoiding anything that was negative. Okay. So that's an action. That's a, that's, that's actually something people can do, but you have to be mm-hmm. intentional about it. Yeah. You just said, no more negativity, fill myself up with good. Yeah. And, you know, it wasn't there wasn't all kinds of Facebook back then. So now oh my, gosh. my, my advice would be to be aware of your Facebook feed mm-hmm. and what, what is coming through there that is getting you worked up, you know, because it's so political right now. Right. Do you have people in your Facebook feed that are always stirring the pot? You know, you can go to their page and unfollow them. You don't unfriend them because mm-hmm. then they'll get mad or whatever, <laughs> but you can unfollow them. Yeah, or hide them for 30 days. Or hide them for 30 days. And that, I guarantee you right now, if I was in the situation I was in 2007 and 2008, that would be one of the first things I would do mm-hmm. is I would go through my Facebook feed and anybody who is very, very crazy left – they get hidden. Everybody who is crazy, crazy, right? Yeah. <laughs> they get hidden. That you become intentional about what you let in. Okay. What you let into your ears and eyes. So you're following the what scriptures, right? Whatever whatever is holy and just and true, mm-hmm. think upon these things. The light of your body is your eye. If your eye is, mm-hmm. is focused on the light, your whole body becomes full of light. So that's what you mean by pressing into your faith. Like, okay, it's time to do what Christ has told me to do because I really need the results of that. Yeah. I I was at church all day every day. You mm-hmm. know, I did I still did a lot of driving because it was subcontracting, so I was all over the city and I found some really good, you know, preachers and teachers podcasts online, 
that I started to download and listen to, I've listened to hundreds okay. and hundreds. Um, so when you say at church all day, every day, you meant I was focused on him no yeah. matter what I was doing, yep. using the the resources available. Yep, yep. Finding finding good pastors with podcasts that you know really lit me up and were encouraging, and and uh, and different um, other podcasts that were positive. Uh, I just filled myself up with it. And if, if it was something that was negative or a negative person, I avoided the situation, you know, I, I avoided them, or at least I didn't take in their advice or I didn't, you know, get wrapped up in the, the drama related to it. Um, and I just, and I piled my house full of books that were going to encourage me and help me move forward um, that, you know, would have a lot more um, personable account, personal accountability built into them. So that I would realize that, you know, whatever happens in the future is going to be, you know, that I have as much control over that as anybody. And, you know, I'm going to live out whatever it is I bring in. And so, um, so it was my intentionality and leaning into my faith instead of leaning away or because I did lean away at first, you know, through fear, depression, anxiety not really spending time in God's word or filling my my spirit and my soul with things of God and it was getting worse and so you know and so that's when when I counsel other men who are going through challenges I remind them of the same thing that they have to be intentional and they have to lean in to their faith right now when it's the most challenging this is when you've got to lean in be a doer of the word not yeah. just a hearer yeah wow so tell me uh, some of the books, some things that helped you specifically. You also yeah. talked about, well, we'll get to that, about a, f- a family that helped you. Yeah. Share, wow. share with that about the saints being good to one another. Yeah. So we just, we had some close friends who saw what we were going through and had, um, and reached out to us to help be that provision, you know, because we're called to be God's hands and feet. You know, God doesn't throw money from heaven. <laughs> yeah. You know, he is looking for his saints to act on his behalf as he feels led or as he leads them, excuse me, as as they are being led. And so we had close friends who, as I was, because I had to go back to school mm-hmm. when, when, uh, when my business, when I finally knew it was over and I was going to have to do something different and I wanted to do something that was a little more, economically (laughs) safe for the future. And I went back to nursing school. So at 38, I'm back in college and, you know, I'm still working full time, but making very little money Mm. and can't work the extra hours I'm used to working and things like that. And so we had family, not family, well, some family, but we had close friends. We had one set of uh, friends who gave us grocery money every month for a year. Wow. Like not like significant amount of money. Wow. And then we had another family uh, friend who found out that we had zero money. One month before I graduated um, nursing school, I got fired from a job. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so I've been fired too, buddy. I joke now that if you haven't been fired at least once in life, you've not really lived. <laughs> um, but I got fired one month before Christmas. It was a week before Thanksgiving, and we were not going to have a Christmas. I was trying to finish up nursing school. We were broke. And somebody found out and came along and gave us an absolute pile of money so our daughters could have a Christmas that year. 
Wow. Um, my computer died in the middle of nursing school and somebody stepped up and bought me a brand new computer. That's hard to go to school um, nowadays without a computer. Yeah. Impossible. Yeah. <laughs> and so just people who just were aware of our situation. And one thing I did learn during that time is you, as a man, we want to just do it all on our own and we don't want to tell anybody what's really going on. And that's the absolute worst thing because then the people around you can't step up and help you. The people who um, follow Christ and, and are in a faith journey with you, if they don't know of the challenges you have, they can't help you. And that may have been one of the most humbling experiences of it all is being willing to be helped. Mm-hmm. You know, the Bible, you know, you hear people say it's more blessed to give than to receive. Well, it can be really hard to receive. Wow. It can be really hard to receive because it can be humbling. When you when it's your job to provide for your family and you're not able to do it to the degree you want to be able to, it can be a scary thing. Because that um, probably gives you different perspective when you're then able to help other people. Yeah. Yeah, because you look for it now. Like, I was helped. Now who can I help? Mm. Well, tell me. Tell me, you shared a few books that you thought were helpful, if you want to share any of those yeah. that you read or some I, places you went. I would love to. So um, so it it really all started because we were in a financial mess. I had made a, I mean, a mess. <laughs> Very few people can make a mess to the degree I made one, but I made a good one. Good for you. <laughs> um, and I had heard people talk about Dave Ramsey for years. And yeah. I'm like, I don't need some guy telling me how to... <laughs> manage my money, I'm fine. Well, it's amazing what kind of help you'll accept when you're at the bottom. Yeah. And so I started listening to him quite a bit and he started, you know, it's it's very, his show is very encouraging and it's, you can do it. Um, you know, it can be done. It's also faith filled, which is important to me. And so I started, um, you know, he would bring on different guests that I realized would maybe have a book or something that would help me. And so I started buying all kinds of crazy books, but I ended up with four different books that I really felt like everything else grew out of. Um, one of the most important ones was a book by a, a pastor named Mark Batterson. A lot of people have heard of him. He wrote The Circle Maker. But um, he wrote a book. One of his early books was called In a Pit with a Lion on a snowy day, which is a really strange name for a book, but it's just, it makes you want to read it. It makes you want to read it. And it's a great read. And it's about, um, a Bible character, a man named Beniah. And he's only mentioned two or three times in the old Testament, but he was one of David's guards, like his Praetoria or whatever it's called, or one of his personal guards. And this man literally, the Bible says on a snowy day, he chased a lion into a pit and he came out and the lion didn't. Mm-hmm. I can't even imagine that, right? Like, you know, he didn't, not like he had, you know, an AR he went down there with. <laughs> you know, it was him and a sword, I guess. And the whole book is about, you know, having a goal and chasing after it and being a lion chaser, you know, in your faith and in your your personal life. And so that book was very powerful. I read that one. The second one was by an author named Andy Andrews, and that one is called The Traveler's Gift. Mm -hmm. And that book probably changed my life more than any book I've ever read besides, obviously, the Bible. Um, 
because it's the story about a man named David Ponder who is at the bottom. He's just at the bottom. And I was at the bottom when I, when I read this book. He's a man who um, just lost his job. His daughter is very ill and needs a very expensive surgery, and he has no insurance, and he's ready to kill himself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so David and I, uh, I just connected with that character instantaneously, instantaneously. And so in this book, he goes on a journey after he wrecks his car and meets seven historical figures and learns seven decisions for success. And they're fantastic characters that he meets. You've, everybody has heard of most of them. There's at least one in there that you've never heard of. Um, and so at the end of each chapter is a decision for success. And the author, Andy Andrews, has a very interesting story. We don't have time to get into it, but he's read hundreds of autobiographies. Mm. And he has discovered these seven different ideas and decisions that people can make that will help them be more successful okay. in what they do. And so um, those seven decisions are fantastic. And I've tried very, very hard to live them all out because I believe they're all founded in scripture as well. Sure. Um, and then I read, of course, Dave Ramsey's book, The Total Money Makeover. And he says it's written so that a six-year-old can understand it, which is good for me. <laughs> um, and then I also read a book by Joyce Meyer, um, and I make a comment in my video that, you know, I mean, I come from a background that says all oh, women preachers and stay away from, you know, the women, this, that, and the other. And I'll make the comment that I always make to people is that Pharaoh listened to a kid who had been in prison for 13 years. The first time he had seen him and put him in charge of the whole country. <laughs> so even Pharaoh recognized when you could learn something from an unlikely source. Right. So anybody out there who thinks they can't learn something from a woman preacher, then you're missing out. What the, was the name of the book? Never Give Up. Okay. And you made a yeah. comment. You said it's full of scripture references. So you can't go oh, wrong man. when someone's compiling the word of God. Right. And letting Right. Know. It's just, I mean, all of her books are like that. And I haven't read very many of them, but I just loved this one because it was all about just not giving up, full of scripture. Um, I'll still maintain that probably Andy Andrews' book, The Traveler's Gift, was the most powerful one. Anybody who feels like they're at the bottom for any yeah. reason. And I read that one. I remember you telling me about that in one of our discussions. I have it on audiobook, and I every yeah. now and then I just put in my headphones and just fill up with it because it's so good. You know, James, I think what I'm hearing is, and, um, you know, these books spoke to you. They may speak to other people, but I think the underlying thing is God had his eye on you and knew what you needed and probably led you, mm -hmm. and you were hearing his voice because of the state your heart was in, no matter what you were going to read or whatever, he was, he was filling you with what you needed. So it even, even those books, great references and everything, but it was really, you know, what would you say to someone right now who's uh, maybe in dire circumstances right now because of everything we're experiencing? What would you say to them tonight to do? What, what can they do tonight? What's your advice to them? They've, and you've already kind of talked about it. I'm yeah. probably asking you. No, that. it's all right. It's it's leaning into your faith, not yeah. running away from it. Because when you're in that dark hole and you feel like everything is closing in around you and you just want to give up, 
you're not actually down there alone. Yeah. So that's where the rubber meets the road. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Either either put up or what's it say? Get up or put up or shut up. But at some <laughs> point, each one of us has to say, "Am I really going to believe this Jesus, or am I just going to rely on him when it's convenient?" Yeah. 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 Well. That's uh, I really appreciate you showing that. So you came to a little bit different understanding of what Manasseh. Did you, you did you say you came to learn that about that a little bit better as time went on? It didn't quite work out the way maybe you thought at first. Yeah, I thought it would be. I th- I thought it. I thought everything would be great after a short period of time, and that I was going to be able to keep my business and everything would be fine. Um, you know, and now at our house, when you're leaving our house, if you look over the front door as you're leaving out, it says Manasseh House. Mm-hmm. We have a sign that we've had made. Um, and it's a reminder because when, you know, he named his son Manasseh saying, God has caused me to forget all my trouble. It doesn't mean he doesn't remember what happened, mm-hmm. right? Just like when God says he 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 remembers our sin no more, he doesn't hold us against us. It's right. not like he can go, what? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and it's the same thing with the Manasseh thing. And and I, I think it's more of a state of mind, you know, of looking back and going, yeah, it was all there, but it doesn't hurt anymore mm. like it used to, you know, that that I can look at that sign, it can remind me of all the things that God has brought me through. And I think that's what Joseph was doing, was he named his son Manasseh. He named him 20 years after he was first sold by his brothers into slavery. It was 20 years later before he finally named his son Manasseh because he could see what what God needed him to do. He saved an entire nation Mm -hmm. because of all of that. So it's it's being able to look back at the hard times and seeing God's hand through it all and what it was he was trying to make you into through it all. It kind of circles us back to hospice, doesn't it? When people <laughs> are at the end of their life, that each one of us someday is going to stand before our maker and maybe things will make sense because we don't understand why God allows things to happen sometimes, but it's all for his purpose to bring us to him, right? For yeah. eternal life with him, to change us. Yeah. Make us ready for the kingdom, children of the kingdom. That's yeah. right. Um, do you have anything else you would like to add, James, on anything that we've talked about? I feel like we've hit it all. Yeah. You know, um, I don't know if I can really That's think okay. of you anything. Know, I know you you and I have had a lot of talks and there's been some other struggles that you've gone through. We, and this has been, this has been wonderful. Um, I hope that, uh, it gives hope to people. Uh, I really like what you say about leaning into your faith and, and just having to do it, be a doer of the word and tied to the vine. Um, I wanted to ask you if you have any plugs for hospice as people grow older and, and they have to make those decisions. I, I, I've always felt that people go on to hospice too late and they lose some valuable time to spend with their family and in, in months, you know, before. And I know, <laughs> speak to that. Because there's always someone out there that, had, that knows someone, whether it's a grandparent or a, or a parent, that, you know, that decision's going to come someday. Give them some of your wisdom that you've learned. Only that hospice doesn't signal the end. 
I think what a lot of people say is that, um, you know, I, I'm not ready to give up yet. Right. And, and trying to get people to understand that hospice isn't giving up, you know, it's just, it's choosing, it's choosing the amount of comfort and peace that you want for yourself at the end. Being intentional. Yeah. It's being intentional. And, um, you know, it's, there's something that a lot of people say is hospice isn't what it used to be, but really hospice has always been the same, but people's understanding is just needs to grow because mm-hmm. people think, well, when I go on hospice, I'm going to, I'm going to die in a week. Right. And, um, and you know, because that's just some experience that they've had where a family member has decided they were going to have all the treatment they could until the last hour, mm-hmm. which is their decision. And so we'll support that as well. But there are many people who have a really great quality of life in the last months before the end who engaged hospice earlier in the process rather than later and have a chance to build that relationship and to get those services that they're really going to need and have that in place prior to the dark, darker days that will eventually come. Yeah. Well, thank you for what you do. Do you have something else, Jay? I have one other thing. Because you, you asked me if I had one closing thought yeah. that I, we could use to talk about. Um, and it's a quote from C.S. Lewis. Oh, one of my favorites. Okay. Yeah. And it says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Oh, boy. Well, I tell you what, our world, James, has definitely become, I think, deaf to the Lord, and we need a reminder. And I think maybe this period that we're going through right now, hopefully, allows people to press into their faith and lean on God some more and maybe think about what life's really all about and what's given us pleasure. I know it's done that for me. I've I've had some moments where I've been pretty sad that I've allowed things in this world to take up so much of my time and really that that that's where I put my hope or what I look forward to every day and I'm really trying to reevaluate. I think it's a time for a lot of us to do that. Timely video, my friend. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on. Yeah. Well, um for most of you probably haven't figured out James and I do not belong to the same I would do air quotes again faith but I feel like we do belong to the same faith that we both believe in Jesus Christ and his kingdom and in treating one another um, with love like he commanded us and so I consider him my brother in Christ and I consider him a saint and thank you for sharing your story brother thank you for having me on all right until next time God bless <laughs>